uh, you know, very important thing. Uh, if you have to, most of you are here most Sundays. Uh, and a very important thing about my life is that you need to know uh, that I come from a hardware store. Uh, my grandfather, after World War II, he started a hardware store uh, with his partner, Bill Shotwell. And uh, Bill Shotwell and my grandpa sold that hardware store uh, to my dad and my uncle uh, in the late 70s. And, um, and so my whole childhood was about the hardware store. Every family gathering was about the hardware store. And uh, I would go a lot of Saturdays. My dad would give me $2 an hour uh, to run around the hardware store. Uh, if you've been to Chevy Chase Hardware over close to campus, that's exactly what it looked like. And um, I would get on a, a, a mop bucket, a kind of a mop dolly that you would strap a, a mop bucket to. And it was just a dolly. I'd sit on that. I'd put on a hard hat and I'd get a, a, a gas siphon pump, which kind of looked like a plastic sword. And that's I would ride on my, you know, I'd sit down on that thing and I'd ride around all around the hardware store like a ninja. And um, that was my childhood. And as the older I got, I began to really work there and work the cash register, help people find items in the store. And um, I, I got to know a, a lot of people uh, who uh, were do-it-yourself people, people who wanted to fix their own house, electricians, um, uh, plumbers, uh, custodians. Those were the kind of people I interacted with when I was working at the hardware store. A huge part of my life was this hardware store. Uh, the employees uh, from Wild Bill was my favorite. Um, everybody called him Wild Bill because he was kind of wild. Uh, something was ticking right here, you know. And um, uh, a lot of the employees were retired. Uh, were, they retired because they couldn't do manual labor anymore, but they knew everything about hardware. Those are the people I grew up around. It was a very blue-collar existence growing up in my home. Uh, but my family was very educated. Uh, so my mom and dad both graduated from college. Lots of my aunts and uncles graduated from college. Uh, lots of my cousins, we were all encouraged and challenged to do well in school, make good grades, and go to college. So you, how does that blue-collar go with education? Well, here's exactly what it is. Education was purely a function of trying not to be poor. People didn't go to school for the life of the mind. They went to school so you could get a job. Now, I know I'm probably sounding like some of your parents, um, but that is the way education functioned in my house. But it wasn't until I got to college that I realized I really had never learned to think. I never really learned to ask questions. I never really learned to study. So college was really, really, really hard for me. Even as a business student, it was really hard for me. But then I began to enjoy learning for the first time. For the first time, I actually wanted to read something that wasn't the sports page. And I started asking bigger questions about life. Things like, why do I exist? What's God like? What's my purpose? How did I get here? Sure, I was a Christian when I was in college, but I never really used my brain for anything other than to get the grades I needed to make, to get the degree I needed so I could make the money that I wanted to make. So what I discovered in college, what I'm still growing in, is that the life of the mind really matters. God cares about our brains. So our sermon today uh, is about the resurrection and the life of the mind. And some of you might say, hear the mind in the sermon title and think, great, today's going to be a sermon where I will be uh, intellectually stimulated. I'm so happy about that. If that's you, be ready. Uh, things are not going to be all cheery for you as we move through our text. Others of you are like, are you serious? 
I mean, I just want to talk about something a little more practical, Marsh. I get it. But we need to realize that God's revealed himself to us in a book with multiple languages over multiple centuries, with dozens of authors. And to make sense of it, to extract the meaning that God wants to impart to us, you're going to have to use your brain. So let's read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 together. Verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The word of the Lord. Uh, so three points today. Uh, the limitations of our understanding of God is the first one. Uh, the second one is the requirement for understanding God. And the third one is how we get knowledge of God. So the limitations, the requirement, and the how-to. So the first one, limitations. Uh, the context of our letter, uh, 1 Corinthians, is extremely important for understanding uh, what's going on here in chapter 2. What you need to know is that Corinth was a very wealthy city. It was a very, very educated city. It was a wealthy city because it was a port city. Uh, lots of money moved in and out of Corinth, so it was very prosperous in a financial sense. But it was also a very educated place because it was uh, one of the philosophical hubs uh, of the Roman Empire. It was one of the few places where every major school of uh, philosophy uh, was where it was. So Corinth was in, in many ways, you could call it Smartville. It sounds a lot like uh, Lexington is to the state of Kentucky. Uh, see, Lexington is by far uh, the most educated city in our state. Uh, don't, um, don't compare that to outside of our state. But to our state, it's a um, very educated place. 
And Paul comes to these people. He comes uh, to Corinth and he says, I know that you think you understand the intellectual life, but I'm here to tell you that you don't. And so Paul outlines for them with great emphasis that they have limitations to what they can actually know. They're limited by time, by their senses, and by their access. Look at verses 6 and 7. You'll see time there. They have a limited knowledge of time. Uh, he says in verses 6 and 7 that there are two kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom of this age, which will pass away. And there's the hidden wisdom of God. And this hidden wisdom is eternal. So we're limited by time to how much we can know. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? You're only going to live so long. So there's only so much you can know. Verse 9. You see the limited by our senses. Uh, he quotes Isaiah 64, verse 4 here, and says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So Paul's saying that even if you fully engage all five of your senses, what you can know, you can't know everything. It's simply out of reach. You can, you can exhaust all your human ingenuity, and you're still going to fall short of being all-knowing. So you're limited by your senses. You're also uh, limited, lastly, by your access. Look at verse 11. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. I mean, think about a person that you know. You can only know as much as they're willing to share about them. In the same way, you can only know as much about God as He's willing to give you access to. And there are some things that God has not given us access to. You cannot know what God is always up to. You cannot know who God is completely because He's not let us. So we have real limitations. So the Corinthians, even though they think they're smart. Now these are real limitations that are true for all fallen people. But they're also limitations because of our environment. Uh, one of these environments is the church. The second is our wider culture. Take the church first. Here's why you can't know everything. Here's what, why the, the, the mind has fallen uh, because you're in the 21st century in a Western church. It's because we've not championed the life of the mind. Uh, the 21st century church, our great strength is also our great weakness. See, our strength is an emphasis on conversion. And when you emphasize conversion, you're really proclaiming that God can change people in an immediate fashion. Another one of our strengths is that we're committed to God acting on us in such a way that it affects our emotions and it affects our actions so that our religion is not just one of formal observance. It's a strength. Our strength is that we're a movement of the people. So we're able to recruit large amounts, amounts of people to worthy Christian causes. But for all these commendable traits, they also pose problems for the intellectual life. See, the intellectual life, it takes a lot of time. It honors the contributions of the past. It requires special insight from those who's given their life to be specialists in certain academic disciplines. But the church in our day has either given up totally on the life of the mind, and in its place it's just merely appealed uh, to our senses, or the church in our day has chosen to be only a place for smart people to debate the finer points of theology. So we have limitations just because we're in the church in the 21st century in America. 
Uh, we also have limitations, uh, not just because of what Paul mentions, not just because of the church, but also because of our wider culture. Now, the church suffers from intellectual weakness uh, for reasons that are independent of our wider culture. But it'd be foolish to say that the church is really all that different from the wider culture. Because there's very strong trends working against all Americans, not just those who are in the church. And these trends uh, are, work against us to use our mind in responsible ways. Chief among these would be technology. Now, the benefits of technology, they're obvious. But I wonder if we've really realized the downsides of it. I'm thinking mainly here of smartphones when I think about technology. I mean, the benefits. I mean, they, they allow you to be constantly connected to each other. It allows you to, technology, our smartphones allow us uh, uh, to be entertained at all times. They, they give us uh, instant information. The world is literally at our fingertips. Yet our smartphones cause uh, what some researchers call the brain drain. Uh, the University of Chicago did uh, some research, and they, in their research, they showed that the mere presence of our cell phones decreases our cognitive capacity. They did two experiments and indicated that even when people are successful at maintaining sustained attention by fighting the temptation to check their phones, the mere presence of these devices reduces our available cognitive capacity. I mean, just think about this. I, I mean, when I write these sermons, I mean, I, I could literally, I mean, almost, you could listen to this or I could just hand you this piece of paper when we're done. It's almost the same thing. I do it on Google Docs. So I've got my web browser up. And at all times while I'm writing this, I at all times want to check KSR. <laughs> at all times, I want to check ESPN. While I was trying to finish this up this afternoon, I was dying to know what's going on with LeBron. Um, I, I want to check social media. I want to check my incoming texts on my cell phone. And all of these are distractions from the task at hand. What's really funny is I found out about that, that, that um, research done at the University of Chicago, maybe at 10 a.m. This was uh, Thursday morning. Uh, I was at Broom Wagon for a couple hours working on my sermon, and then I went and hung out uh, with one of you. And um, while I was hanging out with one of you, I talked about this, and I just talked about how distracted I feel like my mind is all the time. And I was at this person's house for a couple hours, and about noon, uh, I'm leaving. I'm driving, uh, I'm on North Lime, and I'm driving across New Circle Road. And I hear, I'm, I'm on my phone reading an email from one of you. And um, while I'm reading the email, I hear a car honk, and I just thought the car was behind me. Up, oh, I missed the green light, and so I went across New Circle Road. Well, the car that beeped was in the turning lane beside me because that person wasn't going. So I went across New Circle Road at a red light when cars were coming this way. So not only does it distract my brain from writing sermons, it almost got me killed. Uh, this is all fun and games when, uh, when, when you don't get hit by the car. Uh, but it's not funny that our brains are that distracted that it's causing us this kind of danger. It's, it, it, our, our smartphones are, uh, yes, they, they have benefits. I'm not saying that we all need to have dumb phones, though I've thought about it. Um, I'm just saying that there are limitations to what we can know based on who we are as human beings and based on the context in which we live as 21st century Americans in the church. There's limitations here to the life of the mind. 
But what's the requirement? If we're going to turn the corner here, what do we really need to know? Well, Paul says right alongside all these limitations, he also gives us the key that unlocks this whole passage, this whole idea of the life of the mind. And it's in verse 12. You see the requirement right here. It says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Okay, now that's verse 12. If you go back to verse 11, it says that only the spirit of God knows God. And now this spirit is the one that he gives to us so that we can actually know God. The spirit is what unlocks this whole thing. And we've been given this spirit in the context of love. Look at verse 9. What no eye has seen, what your ear has heard, nor heart has imagined, what God's prepared for those who love him. So verse 9 says that there's going to be a future revelation of God to people, but only those who love him. In other words, it's only those who have this personal connection with God who will actually know anything about him. The requirement is a relationship. This week, um, I watched a documentary. Uh, no surprise if you listen, if you're here very often. I um, watched this documentary. Uh, it's, it's in a series called Abstract, and it's about uh, the designer of Air Jordans. Uh, his name's Tinker Hatfield. And um, uh, Air Jordans, if you don't know, are basketball shoes that have been being released since the mid-'80s, and now they're in full form, all of them. And um, this guy's name is Seeker Hatfield, and, and he's in his 60s. But uh, when he was in college, he went to the University of Oregon, and he was a, a pole vaulter. He was a track athlete. Uh, he was also uh, an architecture major. That's what his degree. So he takes his knack uh, for drawing uh, and his, and his uh, knack for uh, being an artist, and he combines it with his knowledge of being an athlete, and he becomes perhaps uh, the most well-known uh, shoe designer ever, which you might not think is a big deal, but I think is a big deal. Um, and for 20 years, he worked hand-in-hand uh, -hand with Michael Jordan himself. Michael would give him feedback about how his shoes were performing. Uh, he would give him feedback about the design. And Tinker would take that feedback, and it would shape the way in which he would make the next model. So they had this, this great 20 years of um, relationship going for him. Very professional. They admire one another big time. But then for the 20th anniversary, they decided to do a special shoe. And um, Tinker goes to Michael, he's got 20 years of capital, and he says, Michael, I, I need you to sit down with me. And uh, even though you're a very private person, even though you're going to be hesitant to do this, I need you to trust me. I need you to, need to tell me everything about your life. And Jordan probably has never done this with anyone ever, and he did it with Tinker. And Tinker, of course, hasn't released any of this, and he shouldn't, but uh, Tinker's had this lifelong habit of, of doodling. And while he do, he's doodling what he's hearing, He's not really taking notes as much as he's just making sketches. And those sketches become uh, the, the content for the strap that goes across the shoe. And when he's asked about, uh, when he's, uh, when he's asked about how he came up with this, he said that all those other shoes were just really for his performance and for style, but he really thought that this, the 20th anniversary, encapsulated who he was as a person, his essence. Um, he makes a remark that their relationship took, to, took a turn from being professional to being personal. Because Tinker now has a deeper personal connection with someone he previously only knew in a professional manner. Now many of us, we would so much prefer to approach God in a professional manner. In a professional manner. 
We approach Christianity, Bible, religion, the same way we do biology or history or statistics. But Christianity is something very different. Christianity is about being mastered by a person. It's not mastering a subject. Because when you're mastered by a person, it's going to require humility on your part. Because a master is, is going to be dominating you for good reason, hopefully. And there's no longer, in Christianity, you cannot stand over Jesus so to gain knowledge about him. But we stand under him as he reveals himself to us. So when you see that knowledge, it's something that's deeply personal. And it's something that is received. Then it's going to totally reorient the way that you use your mind. When you see things in this way, your minds become gifts from God that are used for others. So any knowledge that you have about God, it's going to come from a relationship with him. That's what our Old Testament reading was all about, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So if you never know God in a personal way, then you can really never have knowledge in the way that he intends for you to have knowledge. So you see this, we have all these limitations, and then we've got this requirement. The only way we're going to have real knowledge is that if we approach God in this personal, relational way. But lastly, we've got to see, how do we get this knowledge? And Paul helps us here big time. It's through Jesus. Jesus makes God's knowledge accessible to our limitations. See, just a few verses before you get to chapter 2. In chapter 1, verse 24, uh, Paul says that Jesus Christ has come to us as the wisdom of God. All the fullness of the deity was pleased to dwell in Christ, according to Colossians 2. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father. So what's happened is that God has accommodated himself to us. There's no way we could figure out God with our pea-sized brains. There's no way that we could figure out God with our limitations. There's no way we could figure out God with our little finite minds. We needed God to figure out a way for us to understand him. And he did it. He did it in his one and only son, Jesus Christ. See, look at verse 2. Paul says right there that he decided to know nothing among us except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, what Paul's not saying here is that the cross is the only thing he ever talked about. Obviously, he talks about the resurrection. He talks about the moral life. He talks about heaven. He talks about the kingdom of God. But the reason he says he only talks about the cross with the Corinthians is because he wants them to know that his knowledge, Paul's knowledge, which is a lot, and that his intellect, they're only used in the context of sacrificial love. See, remember, Corinth is Smartville. It's the capital of education. Paul knows that the, that the Corinthians, that they're used to uh, using their knowledge not to serve others, but to slay them. Paul knows that they're used to using their knowledge against one another. He knows that these people, that the life of the mind is one big competition. He knows that for these people, that, that they take great pride in their degrees and their grades and their place of schooling and what they're reading. And he comes in with the cross and he calls the Corinthians to lay down their intelligence. Here he's calling them to lay down their so-called wisdom in favor of the wisdom of God, Jesus Christ. 
Paul keeps holding up the cross to them and he wants them to say, to pray the prayer, Jesus, you are wise and I am not. And the more he holds up the cross, the more they're saying this. The more they're praying for this. See, some of us, we get electrified by learning opportunities. We love to learn. The life of the mind is something we are big proponents of. Well, I want to say, good for you. But you know who some of the most arrogant, most prideful people in the world are? Smart people. (laughs) See, it's really, really easy. If you're really smart, for you to be really hypercritical of everything. So what's going to help you not be so critical of everything? The cross. The cross is going to be your only antidote. The cross is the only thing that's going to cure you of being critical because it's only at the cross that you're going to see that your intelligence cannot make up for your moral failings. It's only at the cross that you're going to see that your intelligence cannot atone for your sin. Only Jesus can atone for your sin. For others of us, um, the life of the mind has nothing to do, uh, the life of the mind electrifying have nothing to do with one another. But we need to realize here that at no point does Paul call those, call these people who are really, really smart to denounce their brains. What he does do is he just says that their priorities are disorders. He's just saying that their brains are disconnected from God. See, for some of us, we need to see the important role that the, mind, that the life of the mind plays in our lives. Listen to just some of these verses I dug up. Colossians 3. We pre- I preached on this just a few weeks ago. Colossians 3 calls us to set our minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. Romans 12 says that we should renew our minds. Romans 8 says if we want to live by the Spirit, we have to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14 says we are called to sing and pray with our minds. 1 Peter 1 says we're to prepare our minds for actions. In other words, you cannot be a Christian and say, I'm done learning, I'm not very smart, I only do things that are practical. There's just simply no excuse. All of us have to commit ourselves to the life of the mind. After all, look at verse 16. Verse 16 says you have the mind of Christ. So the resurrection power of Jesus is going to help you use your mind for two things. To know God better and to serve others more effectively. To, to know God more. If, if you're sitting there and you're like, I, I'm, I'm just not, I'm a practical person. I don't use the life of the mind. Well, you've got to get into the word. The Bible uh, it has one major theme. It's one story But there's just no substitute for reading it, meditating on it, memorizing it, thinking about it, writing about it. And all of those activities require your brain. So help you know God more. The other thing it will do is help you serve others better. I've heard a lot of people, maybe maybe you're a college student, you said this today, and I don't mean to nail you to the floor, but I might. I, I've heard college students tell me a lot, or people who are looking to change jobs, they just say, I just want to do something that helps people. And here's what I want to say. Give me a job that doesn't help people. For instance, if you design cars at Toyota, do it for people. I, I really need to drive a car, because I'm going to keep driving Toyota until I die. I, don't, I, I want to drive your car, and I want it to be safe, and I want it to work right. That helps me. 
Uh, maybe uh, you're in banking or maybe you're thinking about banking. Well, we need bankers who have the customer in mind, not for profit's sake, but to help the client steward their money best. You might say, well, banking is about, about numbers. No, it's not. It is about people. Think about um, uh, my handyman friend, Jody. Uh, for the last 10 years, no one has helped me more than Jody. So helping people, it's not confined to social work, to ministry, and to medicine. So you're going to need to use your brain to help you study to serve people effectively. And if you're out of school, out of grad school, out of all of it, then you're going to keep needing to use your brain. You're going to have to learn more about the career that you're already in. Why? So that you can serve people better. So friends, let me close with this. The Christian faith contains all the resources and more required for full-scale intellectual engagement. The life of the mind for the Christian is simply this. It's thinking God's thoughts after him. Let's pray. Lord, we want to uh, use our minds. We want uh, to think your thoughts after you. And that only works if you reveal yourself to us. So, Lord, would you be so kind to reveal yourself to us? Uh, Lord, our broken wings have not hindered you from letting us fly. And, Lord, I pray uh, that we, with uh, distracted minds, with corrupted minds, with arrogant minds, uh, Lord, that we would come to you with those broken minds and ask you, uh, to, with your resurrection power, to enable us to fly. We ask these things in your name. Amen.